Welcome to the Forbidden Apple podcast, where we explore the relationship between queer people and religion. They say faith can move mountains, and we want to know what faith means to you. Join our conversation as we discuss overcoming prejudices, find common ground, and celebrate our differences. A former Orthodox Jew and a Spanish-raised Catholic meet weekly and sink our teeth into the Forbidden Apple. Forbidden. The Forbidden Apple. Hi, everybody. And welcome to another episode of The, the Forbidden, Forbidden Apple. Apple. I am Melissa Weiss. And I am Pelayo Alvarez. And today we're coming to you from Brick, Brick Studios. Studios in Brooklyn. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an awesome space. Check it out. They have a bunch of wonderful things. So today we have... We have Peter Krask. Now, Peter's episode is amazing, and we're so excited for you to listen to it. He is a photographer, and the work that was super interesting for us was Modern Devotional. What did you like about that? I liked how he used what was used against him mm. to create something beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, he has beautiful, beautiful um, photography, um, and he, he uses concepts from his upbringing, and how he views the world and he brings it into his current art. And he, mm -hmm. What I really liked is his definition of desire and what that means in the queer community. And so I'm so excited for you to find out. I'm not going to tell you too much. Also how it was linked to shame, how desire and mm -hmm. shame are uh, linked mm -hmm. in the in the queer community. Yeah. And a um, really cool experience that he went through was being in monastery. Yeah, you have to yeah, listen, to, you find have to, out listen to find out more. You know the part I loved about that story also? It's a monk, a monk that got him to be more comfortable about his sexuality. Yeah. And I think that's like mind-blowing and really amazing. Mind. Right. Yeah. So that's a beautiful story. So listen to that. He's very smart, very uh, well-spoken. Well -spoken, and his I love his, the way he connects the old and the new and mm -hmm. the modern and the, yeah. Um, and he does uh, wonderful photographies. Check him out and get a nice photo shoot. It will be a great gift for the start of the year. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Enjoy. Hello. How everybody. are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you Th so much. Thanks for having me. Um, I love this word that we picked up from our first conversations, modern devotional. So I think uh, I'm going to take that as a starting point for our interview. Okay. How do you define that? Um, huh, that's a good question. So um, I define it a couple ways. Uh, modern devotional is a project I'm working on. I'm a writer and a photographer. Uh, so this is a large project that uh, encompasses photography and then original text that I'm writing to accompany those images. Um, so that's the sort of simple version. Um, I sort of happened upon the title uh, because the work is inspired by uh, devotional rhetoric and devotional rhetoric both in poetry and painting. And um, I thought it would be interesting to sort of use that language and put it in a very contemporary place and, and a queer place uh, and see what kind of resonances grew out of that and sort of what kind of um, suggestions it would generate. And I was surprised sort of um, how quickly it synced up 
it was not as big a leap as I would have first thought when I got started on the project. It took me a while to find my way into the project, but once I um, found the groove, it all just um, linked up very quickly. So devotional is a big old word, and modern is modern. So I think I'm always interested in art that sort of draws on the past and sort of interrogates the past about kind of what's hidden in representation from the past, what's coded in representation in the past, and then sort of how we can make that speak in the present. When you mean past, it, um, is that mostly or it just includes religious upbringing or religious texts? Um, I think I would say big past. So whether that's art history, uh-huh. cultural history, religious history, um, but also personal history. Um, Part of the reason I was drawn to this language is it's, you know, from the imagination and my experience uh, being raised Catholic as a child. And um, it's language that has shaped a lot of my experience and has informed a lot of how I look at art and how I experience making art. Um, I'm no longer Catholic. I'm not a Christian. I'm I'm not quite sure what I am, but I know mm-hmm. I know better what I'm not in some ways. Yeah. Um, but that language is so formative, and I, you know, I think it was Freud. I forget which great psychologist said it. You know, our you know our our themes in life are pretty much set by the time we're seven, mm. and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, And I had a teacher once who was, he was a playwright, and he was convinced, like, 10 was the cutoff, sort of. Mm. Whatever informed your sensibility Uh by 10 was what you were going to work on for the rest of your life. And I'm finding that to be true. And and this theme for you is, is this uh, modern devotional paintings and art? Yeah, I think um, that question of sort of how um, desire for connection to... We'll say God, just because that's the word we're all familiar with. Mm. Um, it's also the triggering word. Right, yeah. It's a very complicated <laughs> yeah. word. Um, you can change it if you have your own word for it. I, I, I say God just because it's simpler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, the question of desire for a, spirit, a higher spiritual mm. something, um, connecting with that... Um, you know, is such a profound animating force in life and in art um, of all kinds. And um, as queer people, desire is the great force that animates our experience in the world and makes us who we are in the world. And um, so how those things overlap, how they're connected... Um, you know, I, in my experience, I think they're profoundly intertwined. Um, and I was curious of sort of using that language, um, which is also used to oppress us mm-hmm. and, you know, make many of our childhoods miserable mm-hmm. um, and feeling that we're unacceptable and sort of all of the ways that that language is used to keep us down. Um to sort of turn it on its head and say, actually, no, our our experience, our desire is deeply, profoundly embedded in it. And I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, yeah you, you talked about, right, wanting to talk about the 
how queer creativity is linked with uh, queer spirituality. Yes. And do you feel just through expressing ourselves and that connection, our desires, all of that through expressing that, is that a spiritual experience for you? Um, I yes. It's this is a, there's so many strands to untangle yes. here. This is you know you it's, a, it's yes. a big meaty topic, and yeah. I, I love talking about. it. I think it's really interesting, but um, I think. For those of us raised in a Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. uh, world and and a Muslim too, um, God is a creator God. That's the first story in all mm-hmm. text. You know, God makes things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know, oh. it's an action. That's how God exists. Wow, I never thought of it that way. By you know, I mean the first story is God makes yeah. the world. Yeah, and he looks at the world and says, it's yeah. good. Yeah. Making something is good. Yeah. And um, so already that to me indicates there is a certain spirituality to the act of making. Mm. and that, Or it can be, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, again, that sort of question of desire, um, you know, why did God make the world? Nobody, you know, it's implied in a lot of interpretation that it's because, you know, God was lonely or wanted mm. something else, you know, in the universe. Um, so there's desire in the making. And um, and I think, you know, most creativity comes out of desire to make something that didn't exist uh-huh. before, right? Uh-huh. You have an idea and you're going to make this thing in the world. Um, but I think there is... A particularly close connection for queer people because our desire suggests something else, that something else is possible. There is some other way of being that doesn't exist that I haven't seen before. And, you know, and this is slowly changing now uh-huh. as yeah. culture is starting to catch up. Mm-hmm. But for most of us, I think our initial experience is first that realization of. I'm not like everybody else, and what I want is not like what everybody else wants or mm-hmm. what I'm raised to want. Mm-hmm. And um, and queer people have to approach that question quite creatively. You know, what is the thing that I'm going to be then? I mm-hmm. have to figure it out. There's no model for it. I have to figure it out. Yeah. And um, so I'm you can see how sort of how connected all these things yeah. are that it's you know you're figuring it out is a creative act yeah mm-hmm. and calls on creativity because you know i for my generation i'm 53 it's not like you know there was a whole lot of representation out in the world and yeah. what you know what i saw as a kid was always scary you know you were always going to see like the scary image of gay people mm-hmm. and um and, you know, with religious education, you know, you are taught to be scared of that image. Yeah. And too. shamed also. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that shame is also based on on the power of desire, no? They're very interconnected. Absolutely, yeah. Especially in LGBTQ because they make you feel bad because of your desires. Right. Was this something that you felt throughout your your teenage years when you were developing your sexuality? Yeah, I would, I would say so. I mean, I'm from a small town. 
you know, I went to public high school. I went to private Catholic grade school for eight years, um, and I went to public school, and sort of that was an interesting change as well. But I knew I was different, and I also knew that it, I could not talk about it. Uh-huh. And... Um, And that pressure, you know, which I think we all experience on some level, um, you know, that's a very hard thing to shake, even now in adulthood. I mean, I find uh, as a middle-aged person and as a middle-aged artist, I'm digging much deeper into those questions that I would have thought I would have answered, you know, like once I came out and, Mm. you know... um, but they're coming up in interesting, deeper ways mm. and sort of how you reckon with your desire and your shame about your desire and um, your shame about your otherness. Mm-hmm. Learning how to invert that, um, you know, is a life's work, yeah. I think. It's continuous and, and, and different levels, right? right? It's like you think you've gone through one and then it's like yeah. there's a deeper thing yeah. and then you uncover that. Yeah. What was your – you were talking about the journey of – figuring out your own path because there aren't role models. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about you figuring out your own path and your connection to whatever you call God or spirituality or whatever that means? Um, You know, like all of us, again, it's it's a work in progress. Uh Um, I mean, it's funny. I grew up very involved in our local church. You know, I was was an altar boy. I sang in the choir. I— my first job was working for the parish mm. um, when I was a kid. Um, and my family was sort of very involved in the church, and my mom was a secretary for one of the priests. Um, so I was very immersed in that world and felt very comfortable in it. Um, you know, looking back at it, I don't know that I was particularly, you know, quote-unquote devout or a big believer, mm-hmm. but... There was something about the communal aspect of it, and it was a place of expression and a place where, you know, art was valued. Um, It always used, um, you know, art as a way of sort of directing your attention to something higher. Stained glass windows, Mm -hmm. for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, basically they're comic books and they were intended to be comic books for people who were illiterate to learn stories. Wow, yeah. And it was not about, I mean, yes, it was about making something beautiful, but it was about, you know, here's how you get to know this Uh, higher thing um, in a very simple form. Um, And so you were able to hold on to the creativity that was, that that you encountered in church and the the stuff that you really like the stories because mm-hmm. you're a writer and the photography like the visual right. aspects of it yeah. even though you stopped being a Catholic or a Christian or yeah yeah because I think you know it's again it's sort of that's the thing that forms you mm-hmm. and that's you know your experience your first experience of imagination yeah I think um, was it easy to separate and to and to understand that. Like, is it ever conflicting now that you're doing photography that involves uh, inspiration from uh, religious drawings? Is it sometimes conflicting, or do you have any, yeah, anything inside Yeah, there's certainly, it's, you know, there's a lot of questions that come into play because, um, 
So for Modern Devotional, just tell you a little bit more about it. It's um, primarily photographs of men, um, portraits, but then also um, there's a lot of nudes and sort of very simple direct pictures just about looking at men mm-hmm. and have the experience of men as vulnerable beings because, I mean, the act of letting yourself be looked at mm-hmm. puts you in a very vulnerable position, yeah. which is not typically how we think of masculinity or men, mm-hmm. you know, unless, you know, you're a professional hot man on Instagram mm-hmm. now. But um, but that's a very different thing. very different. That's showing. Thing, yeah. Yeah, rather than being seen. Yeah, and letting yourself um, be quiet enough to be seen and not mm-hmm. putting up uh, a lot of stuff around it. So my images are very simple. Um, very beautiful. And very um, quiet. I think my work is fairly, you know, it's not something that's going to hit you over the head. I tend to speak quietly. I wouldn't say quiet. I don't know. I would say, oh, okay. I don't know. I, I, there's like a connotation there of, of quiet. I think it's more like, it's not extravagant. It's not no. to like pull your attention but it's it's very delicate and it's very beautiful yeah so okay thanks. i think it, yeah. it can speak volumes even if it's okay you know like like yeah. when they yeah. say how meryl streep acts that she doesn't need to like shout right to to get your attention and right. to get you to uh-huh. to understand that she's mad yeah that would be a way of like That's like right. you do like with the your boss who whispers that yeah you know uh-huh. you're in trouble you know yeah <laughs> and when uh, also when oh. the photo because it's not overly stimulating it makes you con um, contemplative, con- what's the word? Contemplative. Contemplative. Yeah. So, right, it's that rather than... Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not something that's like... It, qu- it quiets your own... Like, it quiets the viewer's mind almost to be like, huh. All right, well, thanks. That's, what does that yeah. mean? I'm excited to see uh, the text that goes along with that. Right. I haven't seen that. Okay. And I wonder what that does to the photograph. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. I mean, the text use biblical language as a jumping off point mm-hmm. um, partly just because I think the language is beautiful yeah. um, but you know the stories that were read as children from the Bible are really strange yeah. and Very some dramatic. of them you think like why is anybody reading that to a kid yes. um, I mean I, one of the stories that I examine um, in modern devotional is um, the story of Doubting Thomas. So that's a phrase that, you know, we're raised with. That there was the disciple Thomas who didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus um, and said, you know, I'll only believe it if I can see it for myself. Mm-hmm. And, put, and, you know, says, you know, unless I put my fingers in his side, I won't believe it. Is that the cut on the side? That's yeah. mm-hmm. the thing? Mm-hmm. Oh. And, you know, and he's judged very harshly for that. Um and then, you know, Jesus appears to him and, you know, removes his clothes and Thomas puts his fingers inside Jesus's body and then says, oh, you know, I, I believe. Um, and that's really strange. <laughs> really strange. But it's also, I, you know, I always sort of give Thomas a lot of credit because he actually asked for something deeply intimate. Yeah. And that bodily knowing was the way he was going to recognize somebody. Uh, and that bodily knowing is how we recognize ourselves as queer people, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, 
and that it's through intimacy is how we come to understand ourselves as queer people. And so sort of looking at that story, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't think I'm imposing any meaning on here, but, you know, Thomas enters Jesus' yeah. body. Yeah. And that's a story that I heard often, you know, from grade one up that is through. That so interesting. Yeah. And, it, you know, your kid, you don't really yeah. think anything about it. But as an adult, I'm like, that's crazy. And there's the great, you know, there's so many paintings of that moment. And there's the wonderful um, Caravaggio painting of it, which is a sort of great inspiration for me. But Jesus is really, you know, wincing. Uh-huh. Thomas is in there deep. It's not just a little poke on the side. Uh-huh. He's in there deep. And Jesus is wincing. And... And kind of looking away, and nobody's really sort of quite sure what's going on. And, um, wow. you know, that's a really queer Very queer, experience. yeah. That's what I'm, and, yeah. you know, from a great queer artist. One of the beautiful ideas of Christianity is the idea of incarnation, that the divine comes into the body, and that the divine can only express itself truly through the body uh-huh. and through a human experience, you know where it gets all mucked up and where it gets particularly screwed up for us as queer people is then the body's judged to be bad and yeah. everything that comes from the body is bad and wicked and yeah. a, you know, a cause of sin or shame or destruction or whatever you want to put on it. Um, yeah. And I always, you know, as an adult now, I'm sort of like, gosh, there's such a beautiful idea there. And then... How did that get so confused? We have to uh, talk about you being in a monastery. There. Then, since we're having these conversations, and you're so um, learned, like uh, the way you, that you see things now, my my mind is like, wow, I've never see, thought of it that way. There. So many interesting things. Let's talk about you being in the monastery okay. and what led to that. How you got there? Okay, so just little back story. Yeah. So I I wasn't a monk, and I wasn't interested in <laughs> becoming a monk. Um, yeah, but I had uh, when I was in college a hundred years ago, I was had a teacher who. Uh, turned me on to the writer Thomas Merton. And when we were talking about it, he said, oh, you know, because Merton was a monk. Uh, and uh, he said, you know, there's actually a monastery not far from here. This was in Maryland. And he said, you know, you could always go. You can stay for a weekend and just see what the experience was like. So I was like, sure, you know, I'll, I'll do that. And um, I went to the monastery uh, in Berryville, Virginia. And... On one of my visits there, one of the monks said, you know, we have a program where people can come and stay for a longer period of time and live in the monastery proper. And, you know, the only condition is that you follow the rule of life that we do and then work, you know, on the property. And, you know, you can stay for up to three months. And I was taking a year off before I went to graduate school. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm never going to have this time again Mm -hmm. in my life to to just sort of step away and step out. And, I, you know, I, I when I tell the story, and I'm still sort of struck by it, it was a pretty casual decision. I didn't spend a lot of time pondering it or, like, you know, does this mean I want to be a monk or anything like that? I was just sort of like, well, this is a cool thing to do. I'm going to... Living in a monastery. You know, yeah. yeah, I'll never yeah. get to do this again. Um, How long did you go for? I was there for six weeks, and um, and it's, you know, you really are stepping out of life. Oh, yeah. and, you know, it's a very different routine. The schedule's very different. Um, and they have, it's a Trappist monastery, so they have a rule of silence, which means basically, you know, 
after I think it's like four o'clock, like you're not supposed to talk. It's called the great silence. Um, and then during the day, you know, if you walk into a room and somebody's there, you're not going to come up and be like, hey, what's up? You know, you just sort of respect people's need for quiet. And mm-hmm. um, How did silence affect you? I was fine with that, actually. And, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for silence. It's, you know, it's the curse of our time is none of us have time to think anymore or hear ourselves think mm-hmm. and I you know and and it's I, it's one of the biggest creative challenges that we face because creativity comes from a quiet place it comes from a deep place and sort of having the inner quiet to allow that thing to come up uh-huh. and surface is very hard to find now and I think it kind of we're expected to sort of produce you know, create sort of just instantly. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, and I don't think it works in that way. I think, yeah. you know, like the real statement, the really personal work takes some time to sort of come up through those layers. While I was there, I had this sort of, you know, life-changing experience that sort of, you know, strangely butted up with my coming out. And it was the first time, and I, I want to be very clear here, like nothing happened in the monastery with the monk. Um <laughs> Before I was leaving for the monastery, I it was the first time I slept with a man. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is it. I, I, I know who I am. And, um, and it was, you know, difficult and devastating. And, um, but I also knew this was the truth. And then and, you put yourself in a religious institution. Yeah. And then, you know, I was stepping away from the yeah. world sort of right after that. And, you know, I... I, I can't say that I had any wisdom about how that worked out, yeah. but that's just sort of how it uh, shook out. And while I was there, that sort of proved to be the time for me to really reckon with that question of, you know, would I accept my desire and would I accept who I was? And um, and it was, you know, that was a hard, hard thing. And I, had I known what I was getting into, mm-hmm. I would never have done it in a million years. Mm-hmm. Just purely from that standpoint, I mean, the daily life was not difficult, but um, in terms of what I had to reckon with, mm. um, you know, it was profoundly hard. And I think, you know, for all queer people, that's however we come to yeah. understand that there's not an easy sort yeah. of like, oh, it's this. Great. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I think that's starting to change now. Yeah, but, I think it is. Um, but there is that still a pretty big mental adjustment yeah. you have to make. And it also depends where you are, adjustment. right? You grew yeah. up in a really small town as well. It's not like you grew up in New York with yeah, other queer folks. Yeah, you're seeing that yeah. around. And this was, again, it was a very different time. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, the AIDS epidemic. There was, um, you know, the quote-unquote culture war. Um, you know, and every message was, you know, gay is bad. I'm the youngest of five. My siblings were my older siblings were getting married and having kids and you know I fell in love with this man and you know he was he was 21 I think he was older than I was but you know he was burying his friends at the same time so you know that's a pretty big gap um you know you're right in the middle of the big life and death questions Mm. it's not just sort of simple like huh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who do I think's attractive I mean you're kind of just instantly plunged into like oh this could kill me yeah and and I had um 
uh, it was a family friend uh, whose son died of AIDS at 25, and I was 23 at the time, you know, which is not what's supposed to be happening, yeah. you know, at that age. Um, so I think, you know, that sort of informed, yeah. you know, a lot of my own fear and sort of, um, you know, why it was so hard to sort of come to grips with that. And um, that religious thing on top of that, right? They're saying it's a sin and then you're yeah, like, yeah, they yeah, die. So know. that's like clear. Yeah, that might be still, a sin. I mean, it's not like, you know, we can still find those voices yeah. today on television, yeah. you know, where they always find some crackpot minister who's yeah. going to die. Well, tell luckily us. you're not having a generation of, of, of kids dying right now from AIDS. Yeah. So yeah, that's like. Yeah, it's an amazing yeah. but thing man. to have lived through. Wow, that's, uh, yeah. You know, and then with the advent of something like PrEP, you know, as yeah. well, like, I wouldn't have anticipated that happening yeah. in my lifetime. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, getting yeah. back to the story, we digress. Yeah. So you're um, in the monastery. I'm in the monastery. And I had a sort of very profound experience um, where I had a kind of quote unquote spiritual director while I was there. He was a very kind man. And, and I was really struggling and I was sort of, you know, and I'm pouring my heart out to this guy. He was so patient with me. And said, you know, I, I just, you know, I know I'm wrong and I know, you know, what I am is wrong. And he kind of just looked at me one day and he was like, are, why are you so sure about that? Like, you know, why, why are you sure these other people are right? Hmm. And my first thought was like, you know, are you stupid? <laughs> you know, you're a monk for God's sakes. You know, you're in the church. Come on. Um, but he sort of, you know, he was like, no, absolutely. It's like, why are you so sure? Why are you so willing to give away your authority about mm. that um, or what you know to be true you know why are you willing to give that up and and once somebody asks you that question there really is no going back from that you can't sort of put that genie back in the bottle um, or I guess you could try but yeah. you know you would still know somewhere in your brain like huh maybe yeah. maybe not everybody's right yeah um, and it's not that black and white maybe as you thought yeah. Like you can uncover all the... Yeah. Especially coming from the team of people that are usually telling you that right. that's yes. not the yeah. case. Um, yeah. So sort of right after that, I had this very, you know, I, I, I don't want to say mystical because I, I, I it's, it was such as a personal experience of sort of really having to make a very decision to say either say yes to who I am or no mm -hmm. to it and and I experienced that in a very physical visceral way and I you know when people talk about it's you know it's always the trouble with how we talk about spirituality often is that it's all sort of you know soft and pretty and bright lights and you know soft edges and um <laughs> And I mean, this freaked me the fuck out. I thought I was going to like have a heart attack or something. I'm really, I thought I was going to die. It was terrifying. And, um, and, and I sort of like spent a day kind of like, oh my God, I'm going to die because I could just feel this. It was like a physical weight, this pressure of the decision. And finally, you know, I just was like, I can't take this pressure anymore. The answer is yes. I, you know, mm. whatever this means for the rest of my life the answer is yes mm. and and then it vanished instantly after that that um, heaviness that weight yeah and um 
you know, from there, it's been 30 plus years of trying to figure out what that yes yeah. means. Yeah. And all the layers yeah. that you keep uncovering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we talked about that gap between feeling freedom or knowing that you have the ability to have freedom and actually claiming it. Right. Where were you at, at that point? Uh, oh, wow. That's <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, I think I'm in the process of claiming that freedom in a very different way uh, than I have previously. And um, again, I don't know if that's an age thing. I don't know if it's our present moment. Mm. Um, but I think... You know, we're all at a moment now where we have to be visible and um, we don't have the luxury of being invisible, um, at least in a Western, you know, privileged yeah. culture. Um, I want to be very careful about that. Um, but for those of us who can be visible, I don't really think we have a choice. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's funny, I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day that... Um, what we're seeing now as sort of as more marginalized communities are really speaking about who they are and what their experience is and and the pushback against that mm -hmm. um, that there is a real difference between marginalized people talking about the truth of their experience and the reality of what that experience is versus people who feel bad because people think they're mean. You know, um, if, you know, somebody's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm against gay people and, you know, we push back against that and their experience is like, well, I don't want to hear about it or, you know, why are, you know, why can't gay people just be quiet? Mm. Um, you know, and... And it's it's gotten very there's a strange inversion that we have in the media conversation about this that somebody's hurt feelings about somebody feeling like they're mean are not the equivalent to somebody who is faces like real consequences in yes, the world for who yes. they are. Yes. And it's the strange tenor of our time that the person whose feelings are hurt because they're a bigot and somebody calls them a bigot. Um, somehow that's worse than yeah. somebody who faces like legal jeopardy or you know yeah. medical jeopardy or housing jeopardy um, and you know we have to sort of yep. start pushing back harder and sort of telling our story in a way that um, is truthful and sort of um, and I you know somebody's feelings are hurt or not I, we don't have any control over that i feel mm -hmm. like it's just we have to just tell the truth of our experience yeah well um, by exist it's a, right by existing yeah and that somebody saying that it's not okay who you are yeah is not the same as we're saying shut up yeah you be who you are let me be who i yeah. am and that's it that's yeah. not the same yeah. as telling somebody your existence is bad yeah like and that is that should be a no-brainer right you know. Like, that should be a no-brainer. It should, but, you know, and that gets into that whole question of empathy. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and empathy is, you know, that's a big spiritual question. Yeah. And, but it's also a creative question. Can you imagine yourself into someone's experience? Mm -hmm. And I think as queer people growing up 
in a not queer world. We just do that naturally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and um, and I think in some ways it's sort of, you know, I've said this before, uh, it's kind of like our secret superpowers because, you know, we're so attuned to surfaces yeah. and how to navigate them and um, and that kind of imagination of, you know, watching a movie with a straight couple yeah. kissing and then sort of be like, okay, well, if that was me with yeah. another man or if I was a woman with another yeah. woman, um, already your imagination is coming up with some other possibility yeah. in some big way. So that's comes back to that trifecta of desire and yeah, creativity. That's and, interesting. Um, you know, uh, and how that imagine how that is creativity, right? Like you're immediately having yeah. to be creative. Yeah, and I think that's really for me. That's what art is about. Ultimately, it's on its simplest level, it's storytelling and empathy. Mm. You know, inviting someone into another experience. Yeah, and um, inviting somebody to move around in somebody else's skin. Yeah, uh, and and that's you know that's no small thing. Yeah. Uh, as well as what your picture, what your photos do, because of that contemplative um, thing that it does to the uh, to the viewer, it it does that. It makes the person also be creative in their own minds because it's not so loud. Right. You're not over uh, stimulating the viewer, so the person's like, oh. What is happening? How is this person feeling? It's letting the viewer actually be creative. Right. Well, and it's also, I mean, that's the whole sort of, it's the hard question of sort of any art, but I think art that comes from marginalized communities is that, and it's, you know, and it's something I struggle against often is, you know, that somehow we're supposed to tell people what to think. Mm. Mm. And that's the kiss of death always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and I... And I, you know, and I resent it myself as a viewer yeah. or somebody, you know, yeah. we've all been to that play where like somebody's going to tell us for two hours, like something that we know is bad is yeah. bad. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, none of us need to know that. We know yeah. it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think inviting somebody in and giving them an experience where they have to show up. Yeah. Uh, is a very different thing. And. You know, that question is sort of, it, it affects so much kind of storytelling and sort of what stories are told and how they're told yeah. in whatever form. Um, but I think, you know, and that's a real question we face today. I mean, when we first spoke, you know, I mentioned that sort of I this, I feel like my work exists in a strange gap. And I think part of what's exciting about this conversation with me with what you're doing is that you're, you're putting yourself in this strange gap. Mm. Two, which is that as queer people, because spiritual language or the idea of spirituality has been used to harm us yes. and causes so much hurt and so much lasting hurt, um, that we don't allow ourselves that language at all. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've had the experience uh, with my work and like trying to find a way to show modern devotional. You know, I took it to one of the important gay exhibitors in town, and they, you know, they said, well, it's, you know, it's not gay enough. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's not like saying I don't like your work, which is fine. But to say it's not gay enough, I'm like, yeah. It's naked the... men, so what, right. what, what, <laughs> what, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, 
But it, what he said was like, well, it's, you know, if it's about spiritual things, then it's not mm. gay life. Now, that's coming from a gay person. Yeah. On the other end of that spectrum, I had the experience of working on a show about uh, Emily Dickinson and her sister-in-law, uh, Susan, that she was in love with. Mm. And... Um, and the actress who was portraying her and with whom I was developing the project. And it was a very offhand comment, but she said something like, you know, well, for this is going to be about her being a lesbian, it's not going to be about anything spiritual. And I was like, well, wait a second, you know, back that up. So, I mean, I think for many of us, we're sort of trapped between both of those bookends where, like, Mm. you know, as gay people, we're saying we're not allowed a spiritual life. Mm. And then the straight world is saying, well, you're not allowed a spiritual life, Mm -hmm. too. And... Mm-hmm. The problem is we do have spiritual lives. We're, you know, well, and we, we are, we are. I think, I think what I'm discovering, or what we're discovering yeah. in this thing, is that we all spirituality can mean right. We're all, we're all yeah. spirit. We're all existing, yeah. and that itself, anything like you were talking about, creativity, or the way we process things, the way we love one another, the way that we care, all of that is spiritual. Right. Yeah. Yes. It cannot be measured. It cannot be seen. Yes, it's something that you it feel. Exists. Right, and you know, and that question of what is a meaningful life. Yeah, that is that's ultimately that is the spiritual yeah question. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, and I think too often for all of these words, spiritual, political, you know, we sort of get very lazy as a culture and sort of let them have their simplest, smallest answers. Yeah. Instead of saying, you know what, these are b- small words, but they have huge, big answers mm. and send out ripples and all kinds of yeah. ambiguous, strange, unexpected ways. Mm. And, you know, and I think it's vital that we allow ourselves that to exist in that space where we, you know, have our lives have that dimension, you know. And listen, I am not advocating like you know that means you need to go to church or synagogue or whatever Mm -hmm. um or you know the answer is to you know get married and Mm -hmm. live exactly like straight people live Mm -hmm. except you're gay um and more power to you if you do that I, Uh i don't really have any judgment about that but i think most of us don't live in the representations that we see. I think we have a very limited yeah. range of representations in the world, and most of us don't live in that. And I think the spaces where we do live are really interesting, yeah. and people are coming up with interesting ways of living with these questions and unexpected ways of living with these questions. And yeah. I think there's something, you know, I again, I, I, I think I told you the story that I it spoke to one curator who said, well, you know, your work is not political. Mm. And it makes me crazy when people say that. But um, And what he meant to say was, your work is not loud. And, you know, and my question to him is, like, you know, to me, uh, and I, you know, I could say this because I make the work, but um, using language that has used, been used to oppress us yeah. and turning that inside out and saying, actually, at its heart is queer desire, yeah. to me seems a very political thing. Yeah. Uh, and you know, a very big gesture for inclusion and taking our own experience seriously. Um, but yeah. I think, you know, whether it's because we're so hurt by that language, um, you know, we often tend to sort of say, well, that's not for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's interesting what you're saying. You're bringing yeah. up about the, also the uh, the term political and that people get lazy. It's it's an interesting thing that um, political, like talking about gay marriage, can be a, a po- politics, pure right. politics. Yeah. When it's not politics, it's personal. And yet you're doing work which is personal, and people are like, "That's not political enough." Well, and that's then the really rip, that's, the, that's where we're, you know, we're at this really interesting yeah. moment. Is the way the ripples come out and the things they touch mm. are very unexpected. Yeah, and take some grappling with. Yeah, yeah, you know. And the problem is that, um, and this is a shout out to my imaginary. BFF Krista Tippett on being, but I've been listening. Always, oh, I've good. been listening. Right, Krista, it. we got you some more fans. Yeah, um, love it. But she always, you know, her big thing is that the words that we use are just so impoverished. Words like love and political and spiritual, and you know, and we impoverish our experience mm. by using them in these sort of very offhand, lazy ways. Mm. Um, but they're still big words, mm-hmm. and they still have really big meaning and big effect and take a long time to understand. I have this thought now, because you had mentioned uh, when we met before, you mentioned that you talked about when this monk told you, how do you know they're right? Mm -hmm. You also mentioned this concept of how do you know that God has stopped talking? Right. Right? And which... It seems when you're bringing up these words, which is such a big thing in general, and that can mm-hmm. go, look, we can have a whole separate conversation. Yeah. But when you're bringing up these words, it also seems like there's so much that it can mean, and it, you can continue finding more meanings to the same right. words. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, well, I mean, that's the interesting question with, you know, sort of all fundamentalism. Fundamental. Okay. This is See, my contemplative. Is okay. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, is that. Their insistence that revelation has stopped, mm-hmm. that there was an endpoint mm-hmm. to it, mm-hmm. it's contained in a book, and that's the end of the story. Um, I don't know. I think that's very presumptuous. Mm. And I think that goes against the existence of a God that's omnipresent and that lives throughout time. Right. Because that means that God is put in a box of like 2,000 years ago. Right. So if you're saying that you are guided through those principles and that is unchangeable, it means that your God is unchangeable and it doesn't exist in the now. And it's Mm. a very strange kind of idolatry of, you know, privileging this finished book um, beyond Uh. the possibility of ongoing revelation in the world. You know, I mean, science is proof of ongoing revelation in the world, how we understand how, you know. The world works yeah. and where things come from. I mean, you know, theories from the 1700s are not theories that we use today. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody thinks that's wrong. There's not a problem with yeah. that. You know, yeah. it's just how we under our how our, our, our um, understanding grows. Mm-hmm. And um, what we're discovering also doing this right that concepts like spirituality and concepts words. And I want to ask you uh, soon what word have you co-opted to actually mean something different than the way huh. that you were raised because you talk about using text okay. words that we were like miracles and words that were like these big foreign things right like when it has to be loud or it has to be big or somehow other than us mm-hmm. when you actually bring it down and bring it into like our life that's when it's living breathing that is right spirituality because yeah. we're using it as as individuals who live now question what word have you means something different to you now than it has in the past? Hmm. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to the original one, desire. Desire. 
uh, I think desire is the key. And it's, you know, it's not, um, and it's a really good question. I'm going to spend some time thinking about this yeah. later. But um, but I think that's the one that immediately comes to mind because, um, at least in my experience, that was the one that sort of crippled me mm. in a way. But it's also the one that has set me free. Mm. And, um, I mean, I... Another word that sort of comes to mind, and and it's you know, and it's the great paradox of spiritual life and queer life. I think um, is the word blessing. the 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 roots of the word blessing actually mean wound, hmm. and um, wound like a yeah oh, um, and and that the wound itself is the thing that creates uh, the possibility of transformation. Um, and if you look, I mean, that's that's a very biblical thing, the story of Jacob wrestling the angel, which is one that comes up often from the Pentateuch. Um, you know, Jacob is wrestling with the angel and says to the angel, you know, I won't let you go until you bless me. Mm. And at that point, the angel, it's, suggested that breaks Jacob's leg mm. and um, and then Jacob lets him go but he's blessed so the blessing comes out of being wounded and I mean for queer people that is our story I think you know our initial that initial experience of queerness is wounding yeah and it's one that many of us carry for a very long period of time. Mm. But it is also the thing that heals us and makes us who we are and, you know, ultimately becomes something very beautiful. And, you know, I mean, I think that's a really profound thing. It's well, a really yeah. profound paradox, um, you know, but it's, you know, the wound contains you know, invites intimacy. The wound needs to be touched. The yeah. wound needs to be tended to yeah. to heal. And I, you know, to take it back to my story of Thomas and Jesus, you know, it's Thomas enters the wound, yes. literally, um, physically. Um, and that's how he comes to know, you know, this other person, Jesus. Yeah. And, um you know, so it's a physical act, but it's entering a wound. I mean, you can't, that's as literal as yeah, one wow. can be, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not poetic. And it's not a metaphor. It's yeah. an actual physical thing. And that's, you know, by asking for that kind of intimacy, um, which, you know, ultimately is what love is, like sharing your wounds yeah. with somebody and sharing inviting your, somebody yes. into that experience. And wounds also make us take the time that sometimes is needed to... To figure out things right. and to absolutely yeah and to f and to find answers to questions that we had probably yeah and speaking of questions I wanted to ask you kind of like as a wrap up some advice mm -hmm. for an artist that could be listening to us and uh, they are working into a very niche space that a lot of people tell them that that's not sexy that that's not something that is gonna take them anywhere that they should be focusing on something maybe more mainstream that more people like. What would you tell them? Oh boy, that's. Um, I mean, it's a question I <laughs> I wrestle with every day. Um, I have I have two answers for that. So um, one, this is my shameless 
plug, self-promotion plug. So I work with clients as a creativity guide where I sort of am a project whisperer. And I help people with their projects sort of figure out what is the thing they're trying to make and sort of get them to the end of that process mm. in whatever form. Um, and um, and it's a question everybody has because, you know, you want your work to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um and you want your work to be visible. Um, you know, so the question is, what is visible? Is it, you know, is it just sharing your work on a simple level? Um, is it social media now? Is it, you know, your website? Um, is it a gallery show or a full production um, or a publishing um, you know, everybody has to sort of decide that for themselves, you know. But I do know this. I think anybody who makes something with the eye towards getting famous or that somehow you will figure out the thing that people want, you're doomed mm. because you're not expressing anything truthful mm-hmm. in your experience. And I think people pick up on that immediately. Um, you can tell when somebody's... It's kind of talking down to people in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think generally audiences of whatever kind pick up on that, even if they don't know it or would label it as such. Mm. Um, I mean, we've all had that experience yeah. of sort of, you, you know, and authenticity is another one of those words that's become so impoverished. Um, but we know when something's not authentic. Yeah. And I feel like if you're going to work that hard making something, you know, and it takes time. It's not easy to make things. Um, it is hard. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I always, that's one thing I always tell clients all the time is like, it's okay that it's hard. It's, yeah. You know, that's it's part of it, part of the process. Right. Um, and that's maybe the wounding being the blessing, right? right? That's as the, well. the, yeah, the yeah. pain of that is what ultimately. Yeah. But I think, you know, if you are going to work that hard, why not make something truthful? Mm. Why not make something that comes from your heart Mm -hmm. and that comes from the deep place, even if it's lower, even if not everybody's going to see it, Mm. you know. But I think at some point, you know, I really think there is a lot of truth. I mean, I I pray every day (laughs) this is true, but if something comes from, a you know, a Mm. genuine point, you will find an audience for it or an audience will find you mm-hmm. and you just have to decide, you know, what that means. But, um, but again, it doesn't have to be the biggest audience. Um, in the same way, like with your community that mm-hmm. you're building with mm-hmm. your podcast, you know, you may not be, you know, like the daily podcast on the New York times that everybody mm-hmm. listens to, but, you know, you're building a real community yeah. and having a very important conversation that people want to have yeah. and trying to find a space to have it. Mm. That's no small thing. That yeah. means a lot in the world. Yeah. And, you know, we need more of that if we're not going to give up. Yeah. You know, I think. Yeah. So. That's great. Where can people find you? Um, they can find me on Instagram, Peter M. Krask. You can also find me, I have two websites. Um, you can find my artwork on petermkrask.com. Uh, Creativity Guide, you can find me at pmkcreativityguide.com. 
And yeah, those are the best ways. Awesome. We'll link it below so people can okay, actually. Yeah. But no, please say hello. I, I love to hear from people. And I think particularly if people have um, creative questions, I love having that conversation. It's a great conversation to have. Um, but yeah, come take a look. Tell me what you're up to. And I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you so much for sharing with us. This Thank has been awesome. Thank you for awesome. being so genuine and authentic yeah. with I us. Love, uh-huh. I, love listen, I love learning about so many of the things that you've said. I never uh-huh. thought of it. And it, you, you just... I'm, my brain is processing. Oh, good. Thank you. And yes. thanks for some great questions. I've got a lot to think about now, too. Yeah. So. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been another episode of The Forbidden Apple. I am Melissa Weiss. I am Pelayo Alvarez. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.